Well, good morning, Village Church East. It's good to see you this morning. Uh, My name is Craig Jarvis. I'm the lead pastor here at Village Church East. Good to see you this morning. I wore this vest so that you could see me clearly. Um, So if you're having trouble with that, just look for the bright red spot up front. Um, I am very excited about today, uh, not only because I get to share God's word with you, but because uh, afterwards we get to hang out together and have a lot of food. If you would love to, uh, if you love to eat, uh, you're in good company. We do too. We've, we've got tons and tons of food. So even if you didn't bring anything to share, uh, you weren't actually supposed to. So uh, we just need you to come and help us eat what we have. All right. So if you want to come to our house, uh, we would love to have you. That's just a little announcement that I wanted to give right up front. All right. Now, one of my f- worst memories that I have in ministry is at the first church that I served at. I was brought on as a youth pastor. I had no idea what a youth pastor was. Never heard of one before. And uh, so they explained it to me. They said, Hoso, here's the deal. You hang out with teenagers, and uh, we pay you for it. And uh, you get to tell them the gospel, and, and you get to build into their lives. And I said, sold. I'll, I'll do that. That sounds really good. So I took the job. The pastor that was there... Uh, at, our, at our first church was, uh, was really the first pastor that I worked with closely, very much like a mentor to me. I was excited about the opportunity to get to learn ministry from him. And as we served together, uh, I began to see um, some things that I didn't expect to see in a lead pastor. As we, uh, as we would do ministry, there were different things that he would do that I would say, oh, that's really good. And then there was other things that he would do that I would say, oh, that's, that's kind of questionable behavior in some ways. It kind of uh, got to the point where um, one Sunday uh, we were in church and he had looked out into the service. And before he started this message, he wanted to uh, spent some time in prayer. And so he looked out into the congregation and he saw a couple, or, or uh, the wife of a husband there who had just had surgery that week. I think it was the day before, actually. And he realized he had forgotten about it. And he didn't want to look bad because he wanted, you know, this person to know that he cared for them. And so to admit that he actually forgot about it or forgot to pray about it, or didn't show up at the hospital or whatever. Uh, would have made him look bad. And so, before he began his message, he saw this lady in the congregation, and he said to her, uh, or he said to the whole congregation, he said, let's remember to pray for so-and-so in our church. Her husband had surgery this week, and uh, Pastor Jarvis and I spent the whole day in prayer about this yesterday. And I was sitting behind him, and I had never seen him the day before, never even talked to him the day before. And I was thinking to myself, why would he say such a thing? This man that I was expecting to be my mentor, the guy that I would look up to and learn some good habits from in ministry, now told an an outright mistruth in front of the entire congregation, and he and I were the only ones that knew it was false. Took me back a little bit. I thought, well, that's kind of interesting. Maybe that's normal for ministry. And as, as I did ministry with him more and more, those occasions kept on happening. And I was faced with a crisis in my life, and that crisis was, first of all, do I want to work with a guy that is clearly untrusting, untrustworthy, or do I want to work in ministry at all? If that's the person that I have to be in order to do ministry, I'm not sure I want to be that kind of a person. 
as the situations, uh, as more and more situations came up, and I, I saw more and more instances of, uh, of this kind of uh, questionable behavior, flaws in my senior pastor's faith, I began to question his integrity. And after several months and other incidences with other folks in the church, actually the leadership actually asked him to leave. They looked at me and they said, Craig, you like to preach, don't you? And I said, I love to preach. And they said, how would you like to preach for 50 bucks extra a week? And I said, sold. (laughs) So I did that for a long, long time. During that time, though, I began to be discouraged. I I had no mentor. I was kind of leading the church on my own with, with no real direction. And there seemed to be a lot of challenges that would come up, and I would get blamed for everything. And the more that and really, I was just doing a favor by filling in for the guy that they weren't filling the position. And I, I began to get pretty discouraged in ministry. felt like Luther seeing the priests in Rome for the first time and thinking to himself, if this is what ministry is about, I don't want any part of it. If serving the church means serving this kind of disappointment in others, this continual disappointment, this kind of discouragement, then I wasn't sure I wanted any part of it. And this became one of the first times in my life I began to pray that God would release me from this call to serve in his church. My experience, however, is not unique. I meet people constantly who have stories of someone or somebody and a spiritual mentor in the church that has let them down. Somebody that they've looked up to, maybe not even in the church, maybe in their own lives, in their circle of influence. Somebody that they expected to be this and they weren't. And they showed that they had feet of clay, and it it ended up not being a crisis that they appreciated going on in the person that was letting them down. It ended up being a crisis of faith in their own lives. Because of the hurt, even some of my friends who have experienced that have given up on God. So my question to you this morning is this. Have you ever been let down or disappointed by someone you looked up to spiritually? It does something to us, isn't it? It hits us at a, at a depth, a level that sometimes we didn't realize we could get hit that hard at. For some people, they abandon the church altogether. The psychology and logic of this is because they let me down, I'm not going to let anyone in. I'm going to withhold my trust from anybody. And it doesn't have to be with somebody spiritual. This goes on with relationships, right? If somebody hurts you in a relationship and you get damaged physically, spiritually, emotionally, if you get damaged way down here, it's much easier sometimes to build a wall and just not love at all. One man disappoints you, all men are pigs. One woman disappoints you, no women, is, no women are trustworthy. And we have a tendency, because we're made the way that we are, to kind of, uh, uh, to kind of uh, push off our view onto others before they let us down so that we don't get let down like these other people who mean so much to us have let us down. Someone we look up to spiritually lets us down, and so we give up on faith altogether. Here it is. This is the danger of putting your eyes on humans for spiritual stability. Now, in Scripture... Abraham is heralded as a person of faith. You can't really go through the Bible without understanding God heaping accolades on Abraham because of the faith that he demonstrated. In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, the hall of faith, we call it, because so many uh, faithful people, men and women, are listed there. Abraham takes up a huge chunk of it because of this man and his demonstrations of faith over and over and over again. Abraham is called 
the friend of God. He's the patriarch of Israel. He's the, uh, he's the father of the Jews. In James 2, 23, again, going through even as you get to the end of Scripture, and the Scripture was fulfilled that says, God says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a what, church? How would you like to be called a friend of God? That's pretty cool, right? That's a high compliment. And we have a tendency to talk about Abraham with these high, lofty words, this vernacular, because he is a seemingly a man of faith. And yet, Abraham has feet of clay way too often. In fact, the story that we're going to look at today demonstrates how deep his flaws actually go. And so the scripture, so the question is, why does the Bible give us these examples of these men of faith not just the good examples, the stuff that blows us away. Why does God give us the examples of how they drop the ball of faith as well? Because it does. God doesn't just tell us, Abraham is a friend of God. You should be like Abraham. Let me tell you all the good things that he did. The Bible tells us all the bad things that he did as well. And I think there's a reason for that. I think God knows how we are made. And God understands when we are let down by people we look up to, it hits us way down here. And for some of us, rocks our world to the core. And so God says, you need to understand, even these people of faith, even these people of magnificent faith, these, even these people I would describe as friends of mine, friends of God, even these people had feet of clay. And God tells us about the stories, how they drop the ball of faith, way too often. I think he does this because he knows something about the condition of our hearts we don't fully appreciate. Our faith can be extremely fragile when we look to human examples. Let me say that one more time. Our faith can be extremely fragile when we look to human examples. So God lets us see the humanity of those in the Bible as well as we see their faith. And the reader is meant to see that it is, it is essential to be people of faith, we must keep our eyes on one person. Not the person next to you, not your pastor, not, your, not the spiritual leader in your life, not Abraham even, not even the father of the Jews. The person you need to look to in your life to see a perfect example of outstanding, un, unfaltering faith is Jesus Christ. Because everyone else is human. No matter how lofty you lift them up, they will always fall down a notch or two. All right, now I've built you up to the story. You want to hear the story now? Here it is. Let me build you up just a bit more. Sarah is Abraham's wife. Abraham is about 100. Sarah is about 90. Sarah has just been told that she's going to have a baby. Can you imagine ladies having a baby when you're 90 years old? So neither could she. She laughed about it, as you well know, all right? God has just appeared to her in chapter 18 of Genesis and said, you're going to have a baby in one year. Get ready. Not only that, Abraham has just left Sodom and Gomorrah and believes that Lot and his family are gone. So he has no family ties other than directly to Sarah. Now Abraham begins considering his future. If he's going to have a child, where will the child grow up? He needs to have a safe place, not like Sodom and Gomorrah, somewhere where, where the child will have a chance of actually growing and making something of himself, not like uh, the furnace 
that is still billowing smoke up because God rained fire down on Sodom and Gomorrah. So Abraham decides to journey to a brand new part of Canaan. And here we have the fall down, the rabbit hole. If you're using your Bibles, we're in Genesis 20 and verse 1. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he sojourned in Gerar. Now, Gerar is on the border of what would become the land of the Philistines. The Philistines were not friends to the, to the uh, Israelites. You remember the Philistines? You remember one outstanding Philistine that, that uh, was a particular thorn in the side to the first king of Israel, second king of Israel? Remember David and Goliath, right? Philistines were bad dudes. David and Goliath. Goliath was a, a Philistine. This place is just south of the Gaza Strip. So if you know uh, geography, this place is just south of the Gaza Strip as you get into the Negev right before you go into Egypt. This is the area where in a few hundred years from now, the Israelites, after they multiply and everything, they would go into Egypt, they would become slaves in Egypt, and then Moses would bring them out and they would wander through this area. And so as they read this, Remember, they're reading this as well. They would read this and they would go, Abraham, Father Abraham, don't go to the Negev. Don't go down there. We're wandering around down here. You shouldn't come anywhere near here. But in Abraham's day, it was a place that was lush, had lots of, lots of potential. It had uh, green fields and a kid could really do well growing up in Gerar. I can imagine the people as they're wandering in the wilderness and they're probably thinking, you mean Abraham, our father, gave up the promised land to come to this place? And he did. He knew this was outside the borders of where he should be, and he knew some things about Gerar, some things that you may not know about. Gerar had a king, and the king's name was Abimelech. Abimelech was a pig. Abimelech ruled with an iron fist. Abimelech liked women. And Abimelech uh, led his, uh, his nation, his, his area there where he, where he was king, uh, so that they became a bunch of hedonists. This king would take any attractive woman that came into his country and he would add them to his harem. And if this woman was married... Abimelech would kill the husband and take the woman and add her to his harem. Abraham knew this. He knew the character of Gerar. He knew what would happen to his wife, Sarah, if they went to Gerar. And so my question to you is, why would he go to Gerar? Why would Abraham, if Abraham knew Abimelech the pig, is the king down there, would steal his wife and add her to his harem, 90 years old to boot, why in the world would he go down there? But he did. And my guess is he's probably thinking to himself a lot, uh, 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 very similar to what Lot thought. Lot thought the world was end ending. Lot's daughters thought the world was ending because Sodom and Gomorrah had just been decimated by this, uh, this fire raining down from heaven. Abraham might have thought the world was ending and he should go to the best place where he could survive. There is no good answer to this, why he would do such a thing, but he did it for some reason. And my guess is he thought his family would have a better chance at surviving in Gerar than they would in the promised land. So Abraham decides to go to Gerar, and he goes with his typical MO. In order to save Sarah, he's got to lie about her. Does this sound familiar? 
Do you remember when he was down in Egypt? He did this exact same thing. In this way, his, his wife would be spared. If he said, Sarah is my sister, then she could go be a part of the harem and he could live. He would survive. He wouldn't be killed. So, I know, you don't believe it. Verse 2 is right here. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my, what church? She's my Sarah. She's my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. And Abraham knew he would do it. Now, in case you're wondering, well, Craig, maybe he had a different reason for doing this. He didn't. And just so you know he didn't, the Bible clearly tells us why he lied. If you read down in verse 11, here you go. Abraham said, I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place. Which is, why would he go there? And they will kill me because of my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, Sarah, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place where we, to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. This is their story they tell everybody. They get into a bad situation. Abraham knows he's going he's to buy it. So he decides, he and Sarah both decide they're going to lie about their relationship. Now, granted, they're, 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 they're from the same mother but different fathers. They are their half-brother, half-sister. But in this day and age, that didn't matter. They were married. This was his go-to in order to stay out of trouble with the locals. And this happened ever since chapter 12. Abraham figured God couldn't or might not save him. So Abraham took measures into his own hand, and Sarah went right along with the lie. Now, just in case you're wondering, this happened also. The first time we meet Abraham, he goes from Ur of the Chaldees into the Promised Land. There is a famine in the Promised Land, so he goes down into Egypt. You remember this? It's the first big story we hear about him. He goes down into, the, into Egypt because there's food in Egypt. He knows there are idol worshipers. He knows it's going, to be dang, it's going to be dangerous. He knows the pig of the Pharaoh is going to take his wife. And so he comes up with the same scenario. It's in Genesis 12 and verse 12. This is the first, one of the first stories we hear way back in Genesis 12. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is my wife and they will kill me, but they will let you live. So, say you are my sister, that it would go well with me because of you, and that my life will be spared for your sake. Sound familiar? This is one of the first stories we hear of Abraham, and now we get to one of the last stories of Abraham, and he's doing exactly the same thing. What do you think of Abraham? It's kind of disappointing, right? Wouldn't you expect more of Abraham after walking with the Lord for 20-some years? You think to yourself, come on, Abraham, you, you literally talked to God. That, that's a big deal. God has done miracles for you. That's a big deal. You made a covenant with God. You remember that whole walk through the half-carcass animals on the ground stuff? That's a big deal. And after all of that, Abraham does the same thing that he does when he started this journey with God. In addition to this, And by the way, do you remember how that story ended up? The king of Egypt lectured Abraham. Do you remember that? Said, you shouldn't have done this. It ended up with shame and embarrassment. And yet he does it all over again. I think he was scared. I think he took matters into his own hand and he thought to himself, if we do this lie, I will live. Sarah, by the way, is going to end up in a harem, but I will live. 
Since that time, Sarah, in just one chapter, uh, in, in just two chapters before this one, in Genesis 18 and verse 10, the Lord makes an incredible promise. The Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Sarah is fertile. <laughs> Sarah's going to have a child for the very first time in her life. She's barren and she's old, but God's going to do a miracle and give her a child over this year. And Abraham makes a decision to go to Gerar and hand her off to a harem, hand her off to be a part of this group of women, and he's promised a child. Why would a, why would a husband do such a thing? Abraham takes her to a place. He knows another man will take her away. Here's my, here's my ideas on this. I think maybe Abraham was a doubter. Now, for some of us, we don't doubt, right? We're, we're completely men and women of faith. We don't deal with the doubt thing, right? We know God's going to come through, and we, we, we're confident about the future, and we're, we're absolutely straightforward, faithful individuals. So we don't identify with this at all. But maybe, that's you know tongue-in-cheek there, right? Maybe Abraham is a doubter. Doubt is the antithesis of faith. When you doubt, you begin to question the character of the God who loves you. That's the inevitable end of the path that doubt will take you down. Doubt loves to work inside of our mind first and foremost. Why would God do this to me? Hear the doubt in there? Why would a loving God do blank? Hear the doubt in there? Where is God in my pain? Hear the doubt? When we lose trust in God's purposes for our lives, we begin to question his character because at the root of all those questions is, I'm not sure God really loves me as much as he says he loves me because if he did, why would he do this? Doubt runs rampant circles of pain and sorrow and questions in our mind that only keep us up at night and bring inevitably worry. And Jesus says, don't worry. Remember the story of Jesus when he said, don't worry. God cares about the little birds. You know, they, they, they're well taken care of. If he takes care of them, how much more will he take care of you? So many scripture passages that we have that says, God's got this. But when doubt creeps in, it plays strange little games in our minds. And we begin to question things about God we never would have questioned had we not been in this particular scenario. Not only that. Doubt doesn't just play games in our mind. Doubt also begins to turn our eyes on others. We begin to look to other people, and when you begin to doubt the character of God, that's one thing. But when you begin to look at another person and you say, this is my example of faith, and that person drops the ball, how does your faith fare? Don't you go through a crisis and you think to yourself, holy smokes, I'm not as faithful as they are. How in the world can they, this huge person of faith, drop the ball? I don't have a prayer. I can't make it. Or maybe this whole faith thing is not what it's cracked up to be. When we, have, when we look to other people for our example of faith, we will definitely be let down. And that will bring doubt that creeps into our heart as well. Maybe he was not only going through doubt, maybe he was going through depression. Abraham thinks Lot is gone. And anytime somebody goes through the loss of a loved one, there's a faith crisis moment. I'm not sure I've met anybody that hasn't gone through a faith crisis moment when they lose somebody that they love. 
So you need to know that because we need to be really honest about how life stinks sometimes. People are not supposed to die. You will not create it to die. Any movie that you turn on and says, the Jedi movie that still gets me, that line in there is such a great movie. It's Star Wars. It's good. It's kicker. It's really wonderful. But there's a line in there. I hate this line where, uh, where one of the Obi-Wan, I don't know who it is, but somebody way up says to one of the young Jedis that's training, he says, you need to learn, young whatever, that death is a part of life. No, it's not. Death is the opposite of life. Death is a complete opposite. If you want to go through life, and, and if you want to have life, that means you don't die. Death came into the world because sin entered into the world. And because of sin, death passed to all men, for all have sinned. Death is the opposite of life. It has nothing to do with it. Jesus, God did not create us to die. He created us to live. And if there's no sin in the world, we would never die. That's why you need Jesus Christ, because he's got to pay for your sin so that you can have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave us his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is what God does for us. He restores our ability to have life. Jesus said, in me you will have life and life more abundant. God is about life. God is not about death. And God brings us life back when we accept him as our Savior. Depression is one of the worst things. It's a byproduct of things not working out like we, we think that they should. And going through the loss of a loved one is one of the quickest ways to enter into that, tr- that tragic state of affairs. Abraham has just seen what he thinks is the death of his family. And he's old. He's 100 years old at this point. He lives to 175. So if you were to put that into our day and age, he'd probably be just a little bit beyond a midlife crisis at this point. And so he's questioning his own, his own mortality. And the last one is grief. Listen, mourning people rarely think straight. If you're going through a hard time in your life, it is very difficult to make some major decisions. I just had a medical procedure this, this week. And when they, yeah, you can laugh about it. You know what it was. So I, I, I go, it is the 50s medical procedure that I just had to go through. By the, uh, anyway, so they sent me home. The last thing they said to me, if I heard them correctly as I was coming out of anesthesia, the last thing they said to me is they said, make sure when you go home tonight, don't have any big conversations with anybody and don't buy anything on the internet. You want to know why? <laughs> because I'll just buy one of everything on the internet. There's certain points of your life that you shouldn't be making major decisions. And when you're going through a time of pain and mourning, you probably need to not make so many, very many major decisions. I think Abraham was going through a period of grief in his life. And in the ancient Near East, they, they hung on to the grief moments. If you had a funeral, they would bring people in and they would pay them to wail and mourn so that you could create an environment of grief and pain. And it would go on for, for days at a time. They embrace this grief. And I think when you embrace grief like that and, and you get stuck there, it's very difficult to make good decisions. Whatever impacted his life at this time, he made this bad decision to go to Gerar. Doubt, depression, grief, each have an inherent, inherent danger of enabling disobedience. Verse 3. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, now this is the king Abimelech, in Gerar, behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. That's God's opening line to this guy, right? He's never met God before, and God shows up and says, okay, dude, you're a dead man. How would you feel about that, right? Let me introduce myself. I'm God, you're dead. This was not gentle. 
This was literally the last thing that Yahweh did was obliterate an entire city. And now this God shows up to Abimelech, the pagan king, and says to him, you're a dead man. How would, how would you take that if you were Abimelech? Start shaking in your boots a little bit? The very next thing Yahweh does is he threatens the life of this Canaanite king. And Abimelech, by the way, knows what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. The only way to explain that is some god just rained down fire and destroyed the city. And now this same god, this powerful god, is chowing with him. Verse 4, now Abimelech had not approached her, so he said, Lord, would you kill an innocent people? (laughs) He's fearful. And he's probably fearful, not that he will just lose his life. He's talking to the God that just wiped out a city. I'm guessing, he's thinking, God's telling him, not only are you going to die, everybody around you is going to die too. I'm going to rain fire on you like I did with Sodom and Gomorrah. You're a dead man. Verse 5. He continues to talk to God. Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? This guy, this Abraham, told me she was my sister. And, and she herself said, he's my brother. She, she acknowledged it in the integrity of my heart. <laughs> Can you hear him begging for his life? In the integrity of my heart, in the innocence of my hands. He's not an innocent guy. I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you Touch her. Who protected Sarah, Abraham or God? Yeah. God visited Abimelech and told him, hands off or he's dead. God made Abimelech sick, by the way, we find out in verse 17, so that he couldn't touch Sarah. God also shut up the wombs of every other woman in the harem so that he could not have any kids. Abimelech knows something is up. The author is strategically showing us, the reader, that even this pagan king who steals women has more integrity than Abraham. Then Yahweh says something a bit unexpected in verse 7. Now then, return to the man's wife, for he is a what church? I would put the word loser right there, wouldn't you? For he is not a loser. He is a prophet so that he will pray for you you got to think, if you're a Bimlock, you're thinking to yourself, are we talking about the same guy? This guy just gave me his wife telling me she was his sister, so I wouldn't off him. He is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. <laughs> I would think he would say, no, thank you. I don't want this guy praying for me, but he doesn't argue with God. It's also interesting how Abraham's lack of faith has an impact on this guy. You ever wonder how your lack of faith impacts those around you? Abraham's lack of faith to believe that God would take care of him now impacts this king. Verse 8, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. <laughs> and Abimelech, they're probably saying, you, you mean the God that just wiped out Sodom and Gomorrah? We were just there. It's nasty, man. That guy, that God you just talked to? And he's going, yeah, same guy, same God. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, why have you done this to us? And how have I sinned against you that you've brought on me and my kingdom this great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, why, why did you see that, uh, that you did this thing? What, what, what were you thinking, in other words? Abraham gets lectured by an incredibly evil king. And Abraham said in verse 11, I did it because, and here you have it, 
There is no, because I thought there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Abraham, the man of faith, the father of the Jewish nation, the one who talked with God several times, a friend of God, and on and on and on you go. The prophet of God acted in a terribly selfish way. No faith that God would take care of him. And he leveraged the beauty of his wife to save his own skin. He gave his wife to a strange man so that he could live. What do you think of Abraham? If this were your spiritual mentor, the one you looked up to for how your faith should be, how would your faith fare? All right, you want to hear what happened next? Verse 14. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham. This is what happened in Egypt as well. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my land is before you. Dwell wherever you want to. To Sarah he said, Behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. By the way, that's 25 pounds of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you and before everyone that you are vindicated. Abraham was not rebuked by God. Abraham was rebuked by an evil king. Verse 17, Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they began to bear children again. And here we have it, so we understand God made Abimelech sick so that he couldn't be with Sarah. Verse 18, For the Lord had caused all the wombs of the house of Abimelech to shut up because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Abimelech is judged because of the sin of Abraham. But here's the interesting thing. God's promise to Sarah and Abraham doesn't skip a beat. Genesis 21 and verse 2, the next chapter. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at a time which God had spoken to them. When did, when did Isaac arrive? Right on time. Abraham did everything he could to screw this up. And Isaac arrived right on time. In spite of Abraham's sin, in spite of Sarah's sin, God keeps his timeline and God's plans cannot be thwarted by our sin. Aren't you grateful for that? No matter how you drop the ball, God's plans for you cannot get off kilter. Our sin, by the way, may bring roadblocks and unnecessary sadness and discouragement and pain, but God's plan goes continually unchallenged. God is always faithful. His promises always arrive right on time. And he constantly wants to use you and increase doses of faith in you, no matter how much you might think you've dropped the ball. That's amazing. Abraham has dropped the ball an incredible amount of times. We've seen all of his foibles. And yet God continues to use this man and continues to release his promises to Abraham right on time. You know what that tells me? If you're at a place where you think, I have gone too far away to ever be used by God again, you are listening to bad advice. Because God loves to use broken people. In fact, that's what the gospel is all about. That's why the gospel wasn't given to the rich or the strong or the wealthy or the powerful. The gospel was given to change the lives of those who know that they're broken, who know that they've messed up, who know that they're full of pain. Because God will take all that stuff and, and he will make of your life something you never thought possible. It's what the gospel is. 
Abraham experiences this in real time. F.B. Meyer says it this way, We do not deny the inconsistencies of a David, a Peter, or an Abraham, but we insist that those inconsistencies were not the result of God's work, but in spite of it. They indicate the hopelessness of the original nature, the moorland waste to which he sets his cultivating hand. Because Abraham made things right with Abimelech, God gave Abraham favor in his eyes. And in chapter 21, the next chapter, these two make a treaty together and they become friends. (laughs) It's amazing. God intentionally includes the foibles of people in the Bible so that we can realize faith is always a work in motion for everybody. So we can understand faith is what pleases God no matter how small or big we might perceive it to be. That's why faith is a mustard seed in Scripture. Nobody gets the big tree. Everybody has this much. And this is what it takes to please God. Aren't you thankful? Otherwise, just like people like John MacArthur and you know Piper and those guys could be men of faith and women of faith, uh, the big name Beth Moore, but you couldn't. But in God's kingdom, it's not the amount of faith that pleases him. It's a demonstration of faith that he can bless, he can cultivate, and he can build into a strong, growing tree in our lives. So, here's the bottom line. Beware sojourning in Canaan because your faith might be being tested. Don't give up on God because somebody has let you down. These things are written in Scripture so that we can be realistic about faith. Faith is messy. Faith can be discouraging at times. Faith, if you look to a person and say, that's my example of faith, will almost always let you down. But there's a way you can realize a solid faith for yourself. Number one, a growing faith is often a total mess. If you think that you've moved too far away from faith for God to use you, you couldn't be further from the truth. God can use people of no faith because God can give them faith that will grow them strong. Return quickly to the God who loves you, and you will find a God who will give you more and more faith, faith you never thought possible. Number two, a growing faith will experience discouragement. If you've been discouraged by the lack of faith or disingenuous faith you've seen in other people, simply realize this, they are growing too. (laughs) We're all in this together. That's why we work out our own salvation with fear and trembling. Every one of us is on a journey. And if you're looking to somebody and you're saying to yourself, that person will never let me down, that person is a man or a woman of faith, you can almost be certain eventually they will let you down. They are seeing their faith be worked out as well. Idols have a funny way of come crashing down hard, especially when you need them the most. Even pastors you may respect and love will eventually show you that they are still flesh and blood when you need them the most. And by the way, we live in a culture that loves to parade brokenness in religion around because it makes them feel better about themselves. If they can find a pastor, a great man of faith who has fallen, they'll stick them on every newscast because it makes them feel better about themselves. And they know that brings discouragement to all the rest of us who try and live by faith. Don't get sucked in. Remember, we look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Every person has a difficult time working out their own faith with fear and trembling. 
No, expe- no exceptions. Don't let it crush you. Don't let it steal your purpose for which God created you. Don't let it tear away the joy of the church for you and your family. If you're looking to somebody as, as your example of faith and they've let you down and you're saying, I'm done with God, you are looking to the wrong person. <laughs> You've missed the point of every story like this in the Old Testament. We're told about these people who have feet of clay so that we can be reminded that every one of us has them as well. Be careful not to elevate godly men and women because they are still working out their salvation just like you. Faith is a messy business. Number three, a growing faith looks only to one example. A formidable faith requires eyes on Jesus only. This is the huge so what I want you to leave with. This is the big one. When you go to Hebrews chapter 11 and you'll see the hall of faith, I mentioned this earlier, you'll see people like David and Abel and Jephthah and Barak and all of these amazing, Gideon, all these amazing men of faith. They're all listed there. Moses and Abraham's even listed there. They're all listed there. So that we will look at them and we'll say, oh my goodness, look at the faith that they demonstrated in their lives. They're meant to be an encouragement to us. That's why in Hebrews 11, you'll hear words like this. They stopped the mouths of lions. They quenched the power of fire. They escaped the sword. They conquered kingdoms. Whoopee! Yeah, that's good, right? We all want to have that kind of faith. But by the time you get to the end of chapter 11, and all of these examples of all of these men and women of faith, you get to chapter 12 and verse 1. And you know what chapter 12, verse 1 says? Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, who's our cloud of witnesses? Everybody in chapter 11. All these men and women of faith that God shows us in Hebrews chapter 11. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight, the sin that so easily besets us, clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race which is set before us. You know what that means? That means you have your own race to run. You may never shut the mouth of a lion. You may never conquer a kingdom. You may never see a miracle of a burning bush. That may never happen to you. But you have your own race of faith to run. God has particularly cleaned it out and cleared it up so that you alone can run this race. You are meant to run it with faith. Just like these guys did in Hebrews chapter 11, they are our witnesses that we can live by the same kind of faith ourselves. So run with endurance. Get rid of the sin that easily besets you. Keep your, keep your, keep your faith strong and rooted in Jesus Christ. But the next words are what strikes me. Looking to Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. The Bible in in Hebrews 12 does not say, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, try and be like them. Keep your eyes on them. Follow their example. Nope. It says, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these men and women of faith who have dropped the ball but have exhibited faith, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, keep your eyes on who, church? Jesus, because he is the founder and perfecter of your faith. Don't look to a human being, no matter how amazing you might think they are. Look to Jesus, because people will always let you down. David is in the hall of faith. David was an adulterer and a murderer. Samson, a selfish sexual deviant. Barak, a weak judge who wouldn't lead. Gideon, he wouldn't do anything until he saw this weird thing of some fleece test go on before he makes a decision. 
Noah was a drunk. All of these people are listed in Hebrews 11 as men and women of faith. But we don't keep our eyes on them because they have feet of clay just like we do. And if you think you've fallen too far back, take a look at their lives. But realize God calls them people of faith, and he can call you a person of faith as well. But you've got to keep your eyes not on people. You've got to keep your eyes on Jesus. He is the founder and perfecter of your faith. And by the way, don't look at me either. Don't look at Brent and don't look at John. We are all working out our own salvation with fear and trembling as well. If you run your race looking to people, no matter who they are, be careful not to examine them too closely. You will be disappointed. Look to Jesus. Keep your eyes on him. He is the author and perfecter of faith. And he is the only one who will never let you down. Get it? Lord, we come to this moment in our service when we, uh, this is kind of a simple message, really. Abraham had feet of clay. And uh, those people that we look to for examples of faith in our lives, those people have feet of clay as well. And so you remind us that even though we have all of these examples of faith, you remind us that the only one we should keep our eyes on is Jesus himself. So, Father, I thank you for that. I thank you that you gave us your Son so that we could have a perfect example of faith. Too many times our prophets and our teachers and our pastors and our leaders let us down. And we keep our eyes on them and it discourages us in our faith. And so, Father, help us to realize the message that we have just heard this morning about Abraham. And how if we look to people, no matter who they are, we can easily get discouraged. May we keep our eyes on Jesus. May we look to him for an example. May we never get discouraged because we look horizontally, but may we always be encouraged because we know that we have one that loves us vertically. Thank you for giving us the incarnate Son so that we could see faith in real time, fully human and fully God, exhibiting faith like nobody's business. And impressed when he saw little little examples of it in us. Thank you for a loving Savior. Thank you for a gracious Savior. And thank you that we cannot fall so far down a hole that we cannot be rescued ourselves. So Father, I pray that if there's anyone here this morning that is discouraged in faith, maybe they've been thinking about giving up on church or giving up on you or giving up on this whole thing. Father, I pray that you would encourage them this morning with this little message from Abraham. That you build up their hearts and minister to them, speak to them in only the way that the Holy Spirit can. And let them know that you're not done with them yet. Let them know they have still lots to do and remind them that their example is you and not other people. So many people abandoning faith because they set their eyes on men and women. I pray that we would be an example in our own lives, to our children and to our friends and to our neighbors, of what faith, real faith, looks like. In this way, Lord, may you help us to build your kingdom, to grow into little images of you, and when we drop the ball, fill those spaces with grace so that others will remind, be remembered, reminded that you are a God who accepts us all, who will wash us all, who has a purpose for us all, 
Encourage our hearts with this message, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.